open up your Bible or your Bible apps and turn it to uh, Luke 21. Um, just as kind of an intro to this section, um, let them get out of here a little bit. My first initial reading of this when I found out that um, Jeremy was asking me to preach over this section, um, I thought it was about the end times. That is what this section is about. Let's have no doubt about it. But it's not about the end times like I had thought it was about the end times. Here in about three weeks, um, I'll celebrate my most important birthday of 20 years being a Christian. And um, at that time, there was a lot of fear, a lot of misinformation about what was going on with the end times. And as a new believer, I was afraid of those times. I had no idea. And there was so much out there. And, and one of the big books I remember that everybody was talking about was the Left Behind series. And um, one of the things that scared me was loud noises and, you know, like walking in and my wife's going to be gone and my kids are going to be gone and I just didn't know what was going to happen. And um, one of these, like this section of Luke, would be a place I would go to to um, try and find out, to try and learn and know what was going to happen, to have that little bit of information where I could, you know, is it Osama bin Laden? Is he the Antichrist? Or is it, you know, does... Uh, I've had one guy tell me, I don't think, you know, Barack Obama is the Antichrist, but I think he knows who he is. You know, things like that. You hear things like that. And um, there's just so much misinformation out there and things that can lead us in the wrong direction for where we need to be. And as um, I started studying this text and reading it, the Lord revealed to me so much. And... Um, I hope that I will be able to convey that to you today. And so, just to put all the cards out on the table, we're not going to look at this as a roadmap to Armageddon. Okay? We're not going to look at this section and go, yes, this is what's going to happen when the end of the world is coming. What we are going to do is look at the text and ask the Lord to reveal to us what we are going to do. And so, just so you know, over this section of Scripture, I believe that Jesus is using this prophecy about the destruction of the temple as a shadow of the destruction of the end of the world. And that in that, he's not saying these things are going to happen. He's saying, let me encourage you to know how to live in light of these things going to happen. And so, um, we've got a lot to get through today. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And um, I'm just going to kind of roll through the text with y'all because there's like 31 verses we're going to try and get through. And uh, we're going to be... Eastbound and down is what we're going to do. So, um, all y'all that laughed, you've seen Smokey and the Bandit. So, <laughs> um, 
So let's just look real quick. We're going to start in verses 5 and 6. And also, just kind of more intro, so you know where we're at. Um, This is still like Tuesday of Holy Week, right? Three weeks ago, we had Palm Sunday, and then we had Easter, and then last week, Jeremy went over as Jesus got challenged by the Sadducees and the scribes, and um, we're still in that moment. So those moments aren't far away. For us, it's been weeks, but for them, it's just been hours. And so we need to keep that in mind. And so in verse 5 and verse 6, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So we need to get in the minds and in the hearts of the first century Hebrew. Okay? Um, First and foremost, the thought of this temple being torn down would have crushed them. It would have set them so far back. The just sheer enormity of this place. Um, The great historian, first century historian Josephus records that the foundation stones of the temple were 14 feet long, 12 feet wide, 12 feet tall. They came in at over a million pounds in weight. Now, I've worked in manufacturing for years, and I can't even begin to tell you how you would move something that large. It would take an just unbelievable amount of work to do. And yet, here the temple is built on top of those things. Josephus further records that the eastern wall was 15 stories high and covered in gold. Can you imagine? Covered in gold so that when the sun comes up in the east, it would hit that wall and shine brightly over the valley of Kidron and into Jerusalem so bright that you couldn't even look at it. He also records that what wasn't covered in gold was of the purest white marble so that people that lived outside of Jerusalem, when they looked towards the temple, it looked like a mountain covered in snow. That's the temple Jesus is talking about being torn down. Additionally, the first century Hebrew would have been torn apart in their heart. This is the place where God resides. This is where they come for salvation and to meet with Him. This is where their world revolves. And Jesus is telling them that their world is going to end. So, it follows then in verse 7 that they would ask this question. They say, and they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So they asked Jesus two things. They asked Him, when is this going to happen? And they asked Him, what is the sign that it's about to happen? 
Notice they don't argue with Jesus here. They've already, just moments ago, saw the Sadducees argue with Jesus. Saw the scribes making some, you know, verbal chatter his way. And he shuts them down with the truth. No longer will they debate whether this prophecy will come to pass or not. They know it will because they know Jesus speaks truth. And what they ask then is when and what. What's the sign? Just as a side note here, um, in Luke, anytime Jesus is addressed as teacher, it means that somebody other than a disciple is asking that question. So it's not just the disciples. It's a big crowd. He's addressing a crowd of people so that they will all know what's going on. And honestly, Jesus doesn't answer the question until verse 20. But first, he warns them about false teachers. Look at verses 8 through 9. And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name. I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place but the end will not be at once. So you would think that there's a war, there's a tumult, which if you want to know what the word tumult means, it actually means a loud noise. And probably in this um, setting, it means either a riot or a revolution is happening. Jesus says not to worry about those things, but instead to worry about false teachers. There's something much more dangerous out there than war or tumult. What's much more dangerous is false teachers and false leaders arising up in our very own ranks. And for them, it would have been easily led astray. And for us as well. He says, do not go after them. The greatest threat to the early church and the modern church are false teachers. Jesus is warning them and us not to be easily led astray. Which leads me to ask the question, how do we keep from being led astray? I have an answer, but thank you for asking. Um, We have gospel communities for a reason. We have small accountability groups for a reason. We can't do this on our own. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are deceptive. That our hearts will lead us astray. We can hear somebody that's not teaching truth and it sounds good and be led in that direction. We need other people speaking into our lives. I implore you, if you are not a part of a gospel community, get in one. If you are not a part of an accountability group, You need to find those people. We need people speaking into our lives. People that will ask us hard questions. People that will help us fight for our own souls as we walk through this dark world. In verses 10 through 11, Jesus starts to use some language here. Some language that would have been um, very well known. 
to the people at that time. It's not language, it's language that we would look at and go, oh yeah, he's talking about the end there. That's apocalyptic language. But actually, in the Old Testament, this language is used quite often. Let's look at verses 10 through 11. We're also going to read verses 20 through 24, but we'll get to that. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Then in verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the Gentiles times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, they would have heard this language and thought, man, that sounds familiar. And if you look back into Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of those Old Testament prophets, this is the exact same language they used. And we're going to look at one. We're going to look in Isaiah chapter 13. And um, just to get, kind of get the taste of what's going on there and what they would have heard and said, that sounds familiar, but sounds so foreign to our ears. They beat me to it up on the screen. Sorry. Okay, we're going to read Isaiah 13, 1 through 11. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the noble. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make the people more rare than gold 
and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So you see, this language was not new to them. Really, if you want to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 13, you'll see that Isaiah was prophesying about a time. And it wasn't the end time. It was actually, if you look in history, a time when Babylon was going to be overrun by Assyrians. And it didn't just happen once, but it happened twice. But this is the language that is used to talk about God's wrath and vengeance being poured out. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, sickness, signs in the heavens. Jesus is prophesying judgment on Jerusalem by the Gentiles. Verses 20 through 24 reveal then the when this is going to happen. When it's going to happen is when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. It also reveals what they are to do. And that's flee Judea. Flee to the mountains. Get out of the city, away from God's wrath. It also shows the who. Who is God going to use? And it's the Gentiles. It's not Rome. It is Rome, but it's the Gentiles. And it also shows the why. And if we remember back just a few moments earlier, Jesus had brought about the parable of the wicked tenants in chapter 20, verses 9 through, I believe it's 16. And so I want to read that just kind of to get a recognition that Jesus has already talked about that this is going to happen to Jerusalem and show the reason why it's right and it's true. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is making clear this parable. And he's explaining to those people at that time, this is right and it's the judgment of God upon a people because they have rejected the prophet's that he sent, and now they have rejected his son. 
And so they will suffer his yeah. wrath without Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Jesus came. <laughs> and he tried. He tried. Please, ma'am. You guys. Could you he sit down for a guys. second? Absolutely. I'm almost done. And Absolutely. then we'll let you have a time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. But now that he's shown them when, who, why, he begins to answer the next question. The next question was, what? What was the sign that they were going to be given? In verses um, 12 through 19, he answers this question. Let's look back in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your mind, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The sign that they're to look for is not in the heavens or in the armies or kingdoms or pestilences or famine. The sign's persecution. Persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. By kings, governors, even by their own family members, given over to synagogues and prisons. Why? Why is that the sign? So that they can bear witness to him. So that some of those will be saved. You must only open and read the book of Acts to see this played out. In the beginning of Acts, we see Peter healing a man in the name of Jesus. And he's arrested and miraculously set free. Come along to chapter 7, and you see Stephen going before the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, and being killed and martyred for the name of Christ. Preaches a sermon that I'm pretty sure he did not have prepared beforehand. We see Saul become Paul. You go, he goes before kings and governors. He's thrown in jail, shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. And still, he preaches the name of Christ in power. In verses 17 through 18, it says that they were hated for the name of Jesus, but in their steadfast hearts for him, even though killed in this life, did not perish in the afterlife. And just to kind of get that idea going here, in verse 16, it says, Some of you will be put to death. 
But in verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. What's he talking about there? Well, in my mind, I go back to Luke 12, verses um, 4 through 5, where Jesus tells them this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So death in this life is not perishing. Perishing is being sent to hell. And the only reason you go to hell is because you've rejected Jesus. He's saying here, you stand for me and it will be proof that you've gained eternity. Um, I also want to point out, if we think we can do this on our own, we can't. It wasn't in their own strength. This endurance that will gain their lives, that he says in verse 19, was given to them as a gift by God. I have written down here, their endurance against persecution was the fruit of which grace through faith was the root. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a grace through faith puts a whole different spin on what good works might could be, doesn't it? And what the Lord has prepared for us. The book of Acts reveals that that persecution going on in that book came. And in history we can see that in A.D. 70, the temple was brought to the ground. It burned to the ground by the Romans by the Gentiles. A fire so hot that the metal, the gold that was on the outside melted in between the stones. The stones were baked and turned to ash. So much so that later on when people would go to sift through these huge stones to try and get the gold that had melted and fallen in between them, they would turn to rubble in their hands. The temple was destroyed. That happened, and Jesus prophesied about it. Now we get to verses 25 through 28, and it's almost like Jesus now, He's standing at the temple, He's preaching to this group of people, but then His eyes kind of get a look beyond that group of people, beyond that temple And he speaks about another time. Verse 25. 
And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head, and become, because your redemption is drawing near. Excuse me. So, Jesus begins to look at another time in light of this time. He's prophesied the temple is going to be destroyed. Now let me tell you about another time. He's told them how to live, to look for false prophets and false messiahs. And now he's telling them, not only is this going to happen, there's another time that's going to happen. And that's when I come back. He talks of a foreboding that's coming on the whole world. Wrath on nations. Like 20 times before this, he uses the word you. He's talking to those people. But here he says, they, they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. And um, just to reference what he's talking about, let's look over in Revelation chapter 19. And we'll look at verses 11 through 16. Now this is John recording um, a vision that he had been given on the island of Patmos. So just keep that in mind and that this is way after this time. So... Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To be sure, that's the day he's talking about them. And he's doing that in light of the destruction of the temple. They know that's going to happen. And so now they know the end of the world is coming. And when it does, he is going to return with it. And there will be a group of people that will see it. It's at this point that um, Jesus then kind of comes back to the crowd and, uh, well, we'll just read it. Verse 29, starting in verse 29. And he told them a parable. 
Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just as we can know here in the Texas Panhandle when mesquite trees start to turn green, that spring has come upon us, that we can plant, we can do whatever we need to do because they know when snow's done happening. He was explaining to them, you know when these things are going to happen. Notice that in all of these things that Jesus said, the world doesn't look much different. There's always been kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations. There's always been earthquakes and famines and pestilence. And if you don't know what pestilence means, it means a disease, right? We just went through a pandemic. <laughs> so that's a pestilence. Um, those things are happening. So what does that mean? It means that they should be ready for the temple to be destroyed. What does it mean for us? It means that we should be ready for Jesus to come back. Now, this verse here, 32 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. This is a highly debated verse throughout all of Christendom for many, many years. And it's one that I'm not afraid to tell you, I have no idea what it means. Okay? I am lost. After a full week of study and looking at many guys, there's one guy I was telling Brian before the service, um, James Montgomery Boyce, a great theologian of the 20th century, respected across all denominations. This was what he said in his commentary about verse 32. I haven't the foggiest idea what this means. <laughs> so, I can't tell you what it means. And I would be wary of anyone that would tell you what they think it means, or what it truly means. What I can tell you is that historically, a generation is 40 years. And that in less than 40 years, from this moment that Jesus is talking to them, that temple was destroyed. So maybe the generation he's talking about is answering the question back in verse 5. Or verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? It certainly happened within that generation. There's something else too. If he's talking about the end of times and that that's just a foreshadow of him returning, then maybe he's talking to all generations. 
to all generations of Christians. And He's doing that to encourage us, right? Not to look for the end times, but to be prepared always for the end times. And what does that look like? That looks like us living our lives in light of Jesus' return. Desiring others, the people that we work with, the people that we live with, the people that we meet at the grocery store, the people who come into our businesses. Are we living like their eternity is at stake? I can tell you that the world looks much the same now as it did then. And the things that Jesus talked about, earthquakes, famines, disease, comets, asteroids, tornadoes, hurricanes, people being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ in other countries, those things are still happening today. I can tell you that when I started preaching this 40 minutes ago, we're that much closer to Him coming back. Am I living like Jesus is going to return? Am I pleading with my family? With my co-workers? With the people I meet in the street? Now, I'm not telling you to grab a sandwich board and go out and the end is nigh and ring a bell. What I am telling you is that we need to live our lives in more fear of people's eternity than of those people. Jesus finishes out here with a practical way to live your life, really, when you look at it. He tells them in verse 34, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Maybe Jesus isn't speaking just to that generation. I think He's speaking to all believers, saying it's your generation that you're living in. And that if it's not ours, it's the next one coming. And we need to pass that on to them. He warns them and us to not be caught up in the cares of this life. I don't know if y'all remember this during the pandemic, but there were a whole lot of people that started drinking a little bit more. I saw a whole lot of stuff about drug use on the rise. Just trying to squash down the anxiety of a pandemic. And Jesus tells us not to live that way. Not to be caught up in the cares of this world. Because we have Him. We will not perish in the afterlife. 
But we will and we do know people who will and who need to know who He is. Living in light of Jesus' return to me means that I'm preaching the Gospel to my wife, to my kids, to my friends, to the people I've worked with in the past and the people that I'm going to work with. Living in light of the return of Christ, knowing that that temple was destroyed and this world is going to be destroyed. I don't want anybody to go through that. And to be sure, everybody you talk to is not going to accept it. Alright? That's why Jesus warned them and told them that persecution would come. The real question to us is, are you telling people that? Are we leaving this building as the church and going into Pampa, Texas in light of the return of Christ? Can you imagine what we would look like, what Pampa would look like if we were all doing that? Myself included. When I thought that thought, I was like, I can't say that. That's the most hypocritical thing I can say. I like to be at home watching Netflix. But if I really want to live like my best friend might perish, I need to be preaching the gospel. I need to turn my television off and be out there finding those that are lost. Now, like I said, we can look in the book of Acts and see where the disciples went through all of these things. They went out and preached the gospel. They lived for the name of Jesus Christ and nobody else. They were more afraid of people's eternity than the people they were talking to. May God help us to do so as well. There is communion set up around the room, I believe. Um, Today, you know, as we take that cracker, let's be reminded that Jesus died on that cross. His body was broken. So ours wouldn't have to be. And as we drink that cup, that His blood was shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. And then let's remember that it's not for us only, but it's for the lost and the broken and the hurting. Those that are on the side of the road who need us and need Jesus. They need to hear about Him from us. Let's take communion with that in mind today and ask the Lord to move us not just to be grateful from the hell we've been saved from, but to ask Him to send us into the hells that this earth has brought upon others. Heavenly Father, um, just can't thank You enough for Your Scripture and for the prophecies that we know have passed and come true. 
that make the prophecy that is about to come true very real to us. Lord, help us to go and to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.